Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lizenby, and my co-host, Kate Ballou. Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lizenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. Happy winter solstice, Kate. And a happy solar return, Kristen. Oh my gosh, happy birthday. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm going to be saying the same thing to you um, in just a few weeks. Us winter babies. Yes. I just love these days of solstice, like the candlelit sort of sparkling mm-hmm. time. I know we talk about this every year, but <laughs> any plans, any new plans this year? Um, I'm sticking with some old favorites. I'm forever perfecting my Yule log. Also, maybe roasting some chestnuts and Christmas movies. Definitely a cozy night in with a lot of food. What about you? Any Yule festivities in your future? You're just such a Yule log inspiration. Like I've just never gone there. And every <laughs> year you. I'm like, well, may- maybe, maybe I'll this do might it. might be the year. <laughs> I'm more of a wreath gal, you know. <laughs> oh, that's true. Um, my first job making Christmas tree wreaths in the winter. Yes. But as you know, my grandpa passed this year, but the family has decided to gather in his old 1850s ha- farmhouse in my hometown. So we're going to celebrate all together there, which will be, you know, really magical and and poignant. So my family and namely my cousins and I are going to be celebrating, I think, the solstice, decorating the home together, which will be, yeah, sad but special. And I know we often talk about Samhain and thin veils, but I really do, you know, feel this way during solstice too, um, kind of the thinning between the worlds, but I'm excited to be with my family and to mark this time and hopefully, you know, some Michigan snow. Fingers crossed. I remember bringing Cody home for the first time for Christmas and there was no snow for my California boyfriend and I was just devastated. So <laughs> did he mind? Yeah, he actually was pretty heartbroken. So a spell for like I've heard so much snow. about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, it sounds so much fun, like the family gatherings. Um, Teleport me, please. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I agree with you that like this is such a good time like for divination because the veil is so thin, um, if that speaks to you. And I know we've talked about like the crone aspect of the triple goddess as she rules the winter months, but the winter solstice is actually sacred to all faces of the goddess. So I love to revisit like some of my favorite goddess tales, uh, partake in moon magic and leave offerings for the caretakers and mentors who are no longer with us in the physical. I love that. For our witch tip today, um, I'd love to talk about midwinter traditions. So what do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, What traditions are on your mind? 
So I would love to touch on Mother's Night briefly, and I know we've touched on this a little bit in the past, but it's just one of my favorite, um, a little more lesser-known traditions for midwinter. So the night before solstice is known as Mother's Night and the beginning of Yule. So legend has it that Mother's Night is a celebration of Frigg and the Desir and female powers. The Desir, known as the female ancestors of one's line or the supernatural female powers that embody the powers of motherhood or protective feminine spirits. In the book Missing Witches, which we love to reference, Risa Dickens and Amy Torek describe Mother's Night as, quote, a time to draw closer to your maternal ancestors. Mother's Night begins the season in the dark, tied with our breath and our voices to all the possibilities inherent in the space before and between. We keep the Yule log burning to keep us on this side of life, to stay warm and survive until tomorrow. This moment is a dangerous encounter with death, just like the labor of childbirth has been for most of human history. And in this way, this moment is, by its very nature, dangerous to patriarchy. End quote. So, Kristen, are there any winter celebrations that you love? Mm, well, while not really a tradition, I do like working with the energy of the wild hunt this time of year. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a piece on the Tamed Wild blog last year, if anyone is interested, but I'll share some of that here. So in folklore, the wild hunt is the annual procession marking the height of winter. It's a march of the dead associated with the winter solstice when darkness is at its peak, and the veil that separates this reality from others is receptive and inviting. The wild hunt carries themes of death, destruction, and mayhem, and most agree that it personifies the shadow side of nature, especially as it relates to the dark months, dormancy, the end of one cycle, and the promise of another. In the modern world, we're told that endings are sad, and often they are, but they can also be freeing and healing and transformative, and so calling in some of that energy in my magical practice right now feels really supportive. And depending on which stories we prefer, the wild hunt is led by Odin, Diana, Hearn the Hunter, Hecate, Sir Nunos, Mother Holly, or sometimes the devil himself. Trailing behind the fierce leader are all kinds of ghostly apparitions, from the souls of fallen soldiers to wayward witches, spectral hounds to meddlesome spirits, all of whom, according to stories, will gladly carry us off to the other world if we dare cross their path. In parts of Scandinavia, stories say that witches would join the wild hunt without leaving their homes. Through ritual, and sometimes with the help of sacred plants, a witch would tuck her physical body into bed for safekeeping, project her soul outside of its fleshy cage, and allow her spirit to run free. And I know the wild hunt sounds a bit spooky, but it also feels like shadow work, which is so often talked about during this time of year. And like other thresholds that appear throughout equinoxes and solstices, the wild hunt marks an in-between time when humans can communicate with otherworldly entities. So if we have questions for Diana or long to meet Hecate, this was and is a way to be seen and our prayers heard. So check out episode 46, Winter Magic, for more liminal moments of winter. So Kristen, should we introduce our guest today? Yes. 
Danica Boyce is a pagan entrepreneur, a writer, and an educator specializing in cultural healing among European-descended peoples. She works to restore and recreate traditional earth-based spiritual practices to help folks adopt a more enchanted and collaborative worldview. She has been producing a podcast called Fair Folk for the last six years, where she shares her research and the sacred folk traditions and folk song of Europe. She is also the founder of the Pagan Monastery Project, an inclusive community with the goal of establishing the first pagan monastery in Europe. In this conversation, we dive into the Winter Portal, discussing paganism, monastic living, Yule, and solstice traditions. Danica joined us via Zoom. Welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lisenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. And today we have a very special guest with us on the winter solstice, Danica Boyce. Hello. Hi. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so thrilled and honored that you're having me on the winter solstice itself. It's a special day. You know, we're big fans of the solstice here. Um, My birthday is actually the day after the solstice. And when we uh, decided to invite you on, we just knew this was like the perfect slot for you. So thank you for making time for us today. I'm totally thrilled. So we love to begin our interviews um, by asking our guests about their big three in astrology. So would you mind sharing yours? Certainly. I actually had an exciting development in my astrology big three in the last week um yeah so I have Sagittarius sun and cancer moon and I thought um that I had a Scorpio rising but I asked my mom about my birth time again and she gave me a different answer (laughs) so I actually have a Sagittarius ascendant as well which is pretty wild I'm I'm more a Sagittarian than I ever thought I was apparently Is that an identity crisis or is it okay? It's okay. I'm just less goth um, than I <laughs> imagined. I am pretty bubbly and positive. So it, it does explain that. And my intense ambitiousness is uh, accounted for mm-hmm. as well. Definitely. We're both Scorpio risings on this podcast. So oh, we're, wow. we would we're have holding been proud down. to have you. <laughs> yeah. We would have been proud to have you in the club, though. I still identify. I feel like I still connect with the Scorpio rising Mm because I spent so much time researching it that it's just now it's part of my cultural identity almost as much as Mm. anything. Goth at heart. (laughs) Exactly. I really get it. I really get the goth approach to things. I think, I mean, we all have Scorpio somewhere, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I feel like the cancer part is really helpful because when you have double Sagittarius, you could become really unmoored from other people's feelings I imagine I know that part of me (laughs) it's very like just so up there in the air and it really helps that I have this really um cuddly empathetic part of me that that can't help but be emotional and so that really grounds me and I hope it makes me a nicer person than I might otherwise be so Danica can you share a little bit about your work um and about yourself in your own words yes I I feel like for me, my biggest work in life is to reconnect with reality, 
I think that we're having a cultural moment where we've really lost track of a big part of what makes us beings and human beings specifically. And the reality that seems really important to me is just the fact that we're all collaborating together in creating the world and that we belong here and that we're interconnected. It all sounds really obvious uh, if you're in this <laughs> field of thinking already, but just reconnecting with that, the agency that comes from being a part of the world, like a real part of the world. I was reflecting last night about how it's totally wild that we breathe, that our bodies are like built to, to take in these gases at like, you know, we, it's so tangible, like eating and drinking. And you think about, okay, these are really like understandable ways that our bodies might interact with the environment, but breath is a totally other thing. And it, and it just blew my mind for a minute there. Wow. And I often think about like breath and its intersection with magic, right? Because anyone who studied the history of magic knows that breath and breath work, like, you know, intersects itself or interjects itself um, into that narrative as well. So yeah, I like what you're saying. And in conversation with the trees too. Mm -hmm. Right. That was where it was. That was the sort of linchpin. It was like, we're feeding the world with our breath. Like we are designed to, to not just take, like we think about how we are just these taking beings. We imagine ourselves almost like in some really negative ways, like a dumpster or something like we're just eating up the world and we're, and we're like consuming all the time. But every time we consume something, especially air, we're transforming it and making it food for something else, which is just something really important to anchor into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would love for you to talk about your background a little bit. I believe you um, studied me- or medieval studies. Is that correct? Yes, I did a master's in medieval studies that was focused on the history of anti-Semitism in medieval England specifically. And so mm-hmm. how, how Christianity tried to make sense of other ways of seeing the world and how in a lot of ways horrendously destructive and twisted the way that they shaped reality for themselves and others was but it got me really into thinking about how how christianity is such a huge part of how western culture views the world and how how we, we might actually like be able to peek into how that was built because it's pretty recent in world history that Christianity became our default or a default worldview. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, I felt really empowered to understand like that all of that was a choice. And these are choices that we can unmake or question all of the time. And um, yeah, so that's what sort of started me off on, on paganism as a way of life. And for our listeners who might be new to this word, can you share your definition of paganism? Yes. Oh, it's so complicated, but also so simple. (laughs) Paganism, I would define it as a a combination of animism. So like believing that non-human beings in the world have agency and subjectivity um, with polytheism, the belief in multiple possible gods and beings of, of, you know, strength and power of, of various kinds influence. And then just generally folklore and ways of life that connect people with the land that are not so hierarchically oriented. Um, but ultimately it's, it's like this, this definition of paganism that we have, the word paganism is, is problematic because it's just a word that Christians came up with for everyone who wasn't Christian. 
So um, pagan means like, uh, or a pagan means like a country person or a, a bumpkin, a rural person, a redneck. And it's the same with the word heathen, someone, a heath dweller, someone who's out in the fringes and out of the city, which is where all this like current events are happening and where Christianity first took hold culturally. Um, so that like feels problematic a lot because we're thinking about ourselves in terms of not Christian, but the way that I like to think about it, that is helpful. And maybe one day we won't have to be defining ourselves in opposition to Christianity, but right now it is actually kind of helpful because it helps us get a hold on, on thinking about like what was there before this, this cultural movement of one to 2000 years ago, paganism is basically just who we already are. It's our, it's our nature as people and what we naturally are inclined to do and how we're naturally inclined to collaborate with one another in the environment. It's almost like our birthright. It's, it's what we would call in North America, indigenous tradition or, or ways of being, but yeah, it's just a worldview to me that privileges our actual primary experience of the world and and really gives it clout just taking seriously how you feel and how what you want even like i think one way to reconnect with paganism that's really helpful is just to think about like what you desire <laughs> like what does your body want what do your emotions actually want and to take that like dead seriously you know i feel like dancing i feel like singing i feel like having sex i feel like celebrating i feel like touching this tree and speaking to it and these are all things that we're born into and that we just have innately in us and just taking a moment to respect what our real nature is as a, as a being on the planet, that would be paganism to me. And there's a quote, I think like Charles Bukowski, you probably know him. He's a poet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I, it's funny. I think about Charles Bukowski and I don't know if I would like connect with his poetry as much anymore. I'm not in my early twenties and like drinking a lot, but <laughs> <laughs> There's this one thing he's, there's this one question he has in one of his poems and it's, uh, who were you before the world told you who you should be? Mm -hmm. And I think, mm -hmm. I think paganism can be summed up in that question. Um, it can be both a group identity, but also an individual question and, and, uh, initiative to find out who you actually are and just really roll with it like the most beautiful definition of paganism I think I've ever heard. Yeah, <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Charles Bukowski. <laughs> so just to expand um, a little bit more on this conversation and about paganism, uh, you were the creator of a project called the Pagan Monastery Project. Um, and when I first heard of this endeavor a while ago, you know, my ears perked up right away. And I've been watching and listening to you discuss the Pagan Monastery on your podcast, uh, the Pagan Monastery podcast. Mm -hmm. And I think you also mentioned it on the Fair Folk podcast, which is where I first found you uh, many years ago. So would you mind talking about the Fair Folk podcast and how your work has evolved and led you to the Pagan Monastery Project? Um, and then also your return to the Fair Folk podcast, because I know you have some new episodes out after a bit of a hiatus. Yes, I'm going to try to keep it brief. <laughs> that's, a, that's like a story that I could go on for 10 years about, I'm sure. But <laughs> I, um, I did this master's in medieval studies, and then I started studying teaching because I 
it was, I was having a hard time making a living <laughs> as a medievalist, mm -hmm. as, as you might imagine. Um, and so I, I became a teacher and as I was in teaching school, I took a special, a special program in indigenous education. And I was learning all about how the Salish people, that's the West coast of Canada, Southwest coast, and probably Northwest coast of the U S how they taught them their culture to their children traditionally and how Western culture tried to undo that of course through residential schools. And I'd always been really interested in folklore and magic and witchcraft and non-normative ways of viewing the world, but I didn't really have too much of a, an end to that. But as I was seeing these living indigenous cultures and how they share story and how they create ritual and ceremony, I just got this really concentrated longing for what that would look like for me. You know, this is a whole way of life. It's not just something I do on Fridays when there's a full moon. It's something that they, they do every day. And I, and I just thought like, okay, well, what's, what's indigenous to me? What's my indigenous culture? And I found that the, the, the handy word would be, would be folklore and, and paganism. So I, I went off after teaching school because I couldn't find work and I was actually really sick. I moved into my parents' basement and I started making, I started researching to write a fantasy novel based on all of the folklore that I was compulsively researching at this moment in time to, to furnish myself with my own cultural <laughs> background again. And someone told me, you know, you should take all this folklore research you've been doing and you won't stop talking about and make a radio show out of it. So I started sharing it on a radio show in my, on my community radio station, which anybody can do. It's really great. I highly recommend it. And then it developed into a podcast. And then I started making a living off of this folklore and paganism podcast. And it totally blew my mind. It was a huge revelation for me because my whole life as a, a nerdy academic ADHD artistic person, I'd had trouble making a living. And it was the first time I'd made a living doing something that I didn't absolutely hate. In fact, it was something I totally, absolutely loved. And it, and I thought it was like this boring niche thing that no one else would understand or might even actively hate because growing up witchy, you know that it, it can be really dangerous mm -hmm. being publicly interested in those things. But in, in the end, I just found thousands of other people who were so lit up by what lit me up just by me following mm -hmm. my instincts and going back to the roots of what, what made me so happy and feel so connected I was suddenly surrounded by this enthusiastic, supportive, thrilled community who were all so inspired just to hear me ramble on about things that I, that I really liked, you know, that the books that I would like hold to my heart at night, you know, those were not secret to me. They were, they were a public good all of a sudden. So yeah, so I started a podcast, the podcast became a job and I became a career pagan and I was like doing so well. Um, and slowly as I was in that process, I was, I was proving to myself piece by piece that whatever I really want is truly, you know, my destiny. It's truly available to me. And the more time that I spend believing in it and letting it be real, the more incredible, miraculous, unheard of things can happen. And so I was, I was coaching, I was business coaching in the last year and teaching courses on on paganism as, as personal development fodder. And 
as I was, you know, giving people prompts to connect with what they really want and to listen to their dreams, no matter how abstract or strange and take them seriously, I continuously came back to this, this idea that I want to live in community with other pagans, learning and teaching and having ritual and being in historical architecture, just all of the things that like, I was really interested in nuns, but really didn't want to be a Christian nun, <laughs> et cetera. Um, realizing all those things could come together as one thing. And that if I really believed in this vision that kept presenting itself to me, which is just being in these places with, with these people, uh, that I should really just go with that and be like, okay, it sounds like what I want is a pagan monastery. And, and that can happen because everything I've taken seriously before that was just a dream has also come to pass. Um, and I'm not the only person. <laughs> as soon as I started talking about, hey, I'm kind of interested in making like a pagan monastery, you know, like maybe a bit like Hogwarts, but real. <laughs> um, <laughs> hundreds of people just just flowed in like saying this is exactly what I've always wanted as well. And um, if that's not a recipe for success and a real community based on shared dreams and aspirations, then then I don't know what it is. I'm just like smiling over here. I love it so much. Just dreaming. <laughs> um and and not too long ago you did you put a call out for for folks uh who want to be involved like you mentioned and so what support are you looking for for now and and how is that going? Right. So we have an online community that we've opened recently that's for connecting with one another in, you know, one-to-one -one way, as opposed to the way that social media has been set up. It's not all top down, um, a place where we can do workshops and, and learn from each other and work together on our common goal of connecting in person. So, um, and then also purchasing a property in Europe to house the, the permanent monastery location. Right now we're just looking for people to be a part of our community because I think that as people show up in the community and they get used to the space and one another and they see what's going on, people often show up with their own role. Like people will manifest their own role in the space just by being reinforced and, and seeing what's needed. So we do have a space in the community that is that posts current quests, current tasks that need doing and current positions that we have open. And so the thing to do is to apply to join our online community and then come in, look around and see where your contribution might fit because we do welcome everybody's contributions. And if what you want to do is just come and learn and meet other people, that's also incredibly welcome and incredibly important to our initiative. So join the community. That's the, that's the call. <laughs> I love that uh, it's current quests. I'm going to change my uh, task list to current quests, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's like a little dragon, you know, it's like a knight, knight in shining armor kind of deal. Mm. Mm -hmm. So how much of this work is physical and hands-on? How much of it is logistics and operational? And how much is not tangible at all? How important is dreaming, visualizing, and imagining in this type of creative work? The organizational and task-based stuff, I feel like it takes up most of the time in your day, but I feel like it almost 
can't even happen without the dream work and the visioning, because that's where you knit yourself to the will of the world. (laughs) That's where you like align Mm -hmm. yourself with possibility at all. There's, there's so many ways that I've seen in myself in the past that I've gotten in my own way by not believing in what my dreams are saying and not just necessarily my sleeping dreams, but like I said earlier, my desires, like what I want. And I think that most of the work that we're doing collectively, culturally, and in the space of paganism and, and witchcraft and et cetera, and the occult is, is reconnecting with our actual dreaming power, our aligning with our our magic, as you could say, right? Um, it's almost like once you've managed the internal flip of believing in your dreams and letting yourself be yourself and be witnessed by other people, then the physical organizational labor part, it kind of just happens. It's just a day by day thing that occurs once you're out of your own way, I'd say. Is that making sense? (laughs) Absolutely. Now, I was just thinking about how it's just been like such a topic of conversation with um, guests on the podcast, even just like friends of mine of how once you really commit to doing, um, you know, your heart's work, the stuff you're really passionate about, like the people will find you. It's when you're out there trying to create a project or a product for like, you know, an imaginary audience or something like that, or what you think people want that you start running into walls. But if you can really connect with like what your heart wants, everything else kind of eventually works itself out. Totally. I, I've been reading a lot about like startups and because it's a whole scene with the venture capitalist funding and people starting usually tech companies where they're like, we're going to come up with this magnificent product. And then we're going to try to convince people to tell each other about it when it's like, which it works so much better in the opposite way where you're like, what do the people's hearts desire? Let's make that. And, you know, that's the end of the story. You don't have to convince anyone of anything. There's no marketing needed because you're just being there and offering what people want for the sake of making what people want, not for the sake of extracting coins from them. Mm-hmm. Or convincing them they want X, Y, Z. Right. You yeah. Know, something else. Yeah. What if you just asked people what they want and then tried to help them just out of um, wanting to participate in community and collaborating and making a world that we want to live in together? Yeah. Chris, Kristen and I call it uh, soul flares. Like you Ooh. send up a soul flare so that it lights up the night and other people can see you even in the dark or across the water or on a different shore. Um yeah. I love that so much. I really resonate with that. I was, I've been having the same conversation with people about signal fires. I think we have the mm. same, the same yes. idea. <laughs> you become a radio when you start just standing up and being like, I love this more than anything. And I know that a lot of people don't believe in it, but I love it. <laughs> and everyone just starts showing up because they love it too. And now they know it's possible to love that and that it's real and that they're real. It's like we make each other real by recognizing our, our little light. Yeah. Our big light. Big. Yeah. And we're not alone in loving those things. Like it can feel so scary or isolating or distant. And then to see someone else, it's like a special sacred permission to together. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. 
sacred permission. Yeah. Was it hard for you at all? Like at any point in this process with either like the fair folk or pagan monastery, um, cause you do have to get to a point where you're okay being seen. And you know, that's really hard for people. It's really like a lesson in vulnerability. So, um, do you have any thoughts on that or did you experience any of that? Absolute terror. Yeah. Being mm-hmm. <laughs> public speaking is really hard. And the only mm-hmm. way to get used to it is to do it. And there's, horrible, no, huh? there's nothing else for <laughs> there's it. There's no secret. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I started out with public speaking by doing stand-up comedy, which was a really good way. It's like jumping into the Arctic Ocean kind of wow. experience. Of, yeah. <laughs> where it's just like you just, you bomb and you don't die. And then you realize that, you know, you can say anything in public and it won't kill you. And then it's a really good inoculation against stage fright, just doing some, doing some open mic stand-up comedy or performing music. I think musicians are also probably even more brave in some ways if, if we have to compare, because <laughs> I've decided to. I think musicians are maybe even more brave than comedians because they're going out there and burying their souls. So uh, practicing any kind of open mic experience that you can offer people I think is a great, if, if, if anyone's looking for advice about how to get used to public speaking, because uh, I was definitely extremely shy when I started podcasting and making a radio show, I would be literally shaking. I could barely get my voice to, to come out. It was croaking, you know, <laughs> uh, but it was so worth it. And it was so like, as soon as someone writes you and says, this really touched me, then you realize that what you're doing is absolutely important and Mm -hmm. that your voice does matter. And it's, it's just crucial that you just try to speak, just start, you know. I'm just laughing over here thinking about Kristen and I in the early days Mm -hmm. of this podcast, just like the (laughs) sheer terror. (laughs) Yeah. How many retakes we had to do. Um, Cause you you kind of almost like forget to speak. Hands (laughs) just like clasped over here. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I would love um, for you to talk a little bit about inspiration and synchronicity um, and intention and, and following your intuition. Um, so where, from where do you derive inspiration and have you experienced any synchronicities or events that have been like re, really reassuring or validating um, as you walk the artistic, creative pagan path? Yes, I think my inspiration mainly comes from being delighted by the world. <laughs> I really dug into trusting my instincts in the last five or 10 years, noticing how I actually feel, how my body feels, and letting my joy take up more and more space. Um, yeah, I think most of my inspiration comes from other people too. I just love other people. And you know, when you like that, like the signal fires, like the flares, when you meet someone else and they just say something that totally changes your life and you're really not expecting that that day, that's a huge source of inspiration for me. And I noticed that it was, it was harder to connect with inspiration during the pandemic because there were so fewer of these spontaneous interactions with other people it really showed me how much we need each other, that as much as we can derive inspiration from our interactions with 
with trees and animals and plants. Humans are are social beings. And that's a big part of why I've started moving towards this pagan monastery project too, is that I love research and I love sharing information online and teaching and connecting with people in that really amazing diffused way across the world. But I know that a core aspect of us coming back to the reality of our connection with the planet and one another is, is through in-person gatherings and through living together and practicing ritual together and touching one another <laughs> and et cetera. These, these real embodied experiences are the primary source of inspiration. This is what makes us alive. Ritual is what makes us feel alive. This is what we're doing here. And there's nothing wrong with online rituals, but I think that the, tr- the most transformative experiences we have, even if they're just for an hour or two or a weekend, are the ones where we're in person with other people and we allow them to transform us. You shared um, a really beautiful story on the Pagan Monastery podcast on your episode titled Uploads from Italy. Um, and it was about going to Italy and staying at this old hotel that was once a cave dwelling, if I'm not mistaken, um, since renovated. And I could relate to you saying that when you were planning this trip, there was like this practical part of you that was like, no, don't go. This is expensive. Is it even necessary? But you really felt called to go. And so you did. And I was wondering if you might share that story with our listeners and how that trip turned out and what your takeaway was from that experience. Totally. So that was this spring in April of 2022. And I was living in Iceland and I was cold. <laughs> it, was winter, it, was the, it was still winter basically there. And I was feeling really worn out from a, from a long, dark season. And I was also doing all this research for the Pagan Monastery podcast. I mean, for the Pagan Monastery project. And I found out suddenly that there was this hotel chain in Italy, based in Italy, where they took historical dwellings from the Middle Ages and further back and renovated them in a historically accurate style for people to come and stay as as hotel rooms. And it was one of the most beautiful images that I'd ever seen. It was a literal cave, but, you know, it had a bed and the bed was fitted out with traditional textiles like woven coverlet and and handmade chairs from the region like it was perfectly accurate to the region historically how people lived in these caves but you know with ventilation and and plumbing etc but just that I mean there was just this picture that like threw me do you know what I mean when you see an Mm -hmm. image and you're like that is the thing I don't know what it is but there's something about like this place that I really I really want to go there and be there and I justified it to myself intellectually in that it was research for this pagan monastery project that one of the core initiatives is to take all of these heritage properties that are existing in the world and to love them because we do. People who are interested in witchcraft and paganism have this natural affinity for old places. And it's not always easy to justify in terms of like, well, this isn't like a pre-Christian thing. This is actually from the Christian era and like, but we're not opposite to Christians. We're just people who love the world. And the world is full of these places that, that, are, that have been just 
pumped up with human love through many centuries and and have been these network places where we connect with with land and with stone and with wood and animals and put all this care and these are so worth loving and and saving and caring for we should be we should be stewards of of these places i think as as pagans and and otherworldly types so i i decided to go and book this incredibly expensive hotel and it is and i it is in fact a cave dwelling i got there and i found out that um these caves have been lived in since the stone age that the same wow. families had been living in in this community um in caves <laughs> <laughs> That these same families had been living in these caves since since the the prehistoric, far prehistoric era, and and I found out too. I learned a lot about the project when I was there, and I discovered that Italy itself has two thousand abandoned villages, these historical kinds of places. Not all of them are cave dwellings, but they all have their own regional, special aesthetic mm-hmm. and and folk craft and and way of of being that connected with them and and they all deserve to be preserved and that it's actually a crisis in Europe in general that there are all of these buildings that are not being cared for that are being abandoned and that are being lost and that compared to the real estate prices in North America are actually incredibly affordable um, and deserve to be cared for so coming to Italy and seeing both the fact that this is a real place and that this is actually a project that anybody could do, could purchase a property and renovate it and then use it for commercial purposes of some kind or another, or not even commercial. Um, that blew my mind and just made it so real for me that this is something that, that I could do as well, especially with help. And then also just being in Italy, I'd never been in Italy before. I was blown away when I went to the, the archeological museum in Naples, which houses all of the artifacts from Pompeii and it was just this building absolutely stuffed with firsthand primary text accounts of paganism. Just there's so much evidence of pre-Christian tradition all over Italy. It just, it really opened my eyes to how accessible pagan history really is and how present it really is. Like it hasn't gone anywhere. We're really used mm-hmm. to thinking that that is so hard to find information information about paganism. And it's so hard to practice this arcane way of being from a time that we have almost no record of when really it's like we're walking all over it every single day. It's not, it isn't gone at all. And there's a huge abundance of it, especially in that place. But it just felt like this massive reinforcement of the fact that not only is the pagan monastery project totally possible and necessary, um, paganism is also totally possible and necessary. And and it never ended. It's always just been here. It's a part of our, it's a part of our beingness. And all we're doing is, is saying yes to, to life and to, to all the potential that's available and all of the cultural richness that's, that's all around us all the time. And so are you leaning towards Italy for the pagan monastery project, or is that just like one of the many options you're considering? It's a great question. It's just one of the many options I'm considering. It was very encouraging and I'm not 100% sure about it. I'm going to partially lean on our community to help me decide where we want to have this project because 
I've traveled in Europe a lot and lived there a bit, but I'm not, I don't know everything. And I'm, I'm curious what people can bring to the table with ideas because there is a huge potential and there's so many different possibilities. And I also don't think that there's going to be just one pagan monastery. I think that we will choose a first location and that either this group of people or another group of people are going to do it somewhere else. And that eventually there's going to be a beautiful network of such places and they'll all be unique in terms of their regional specificity and the people who decide to create them. So Danica, I would love to hear a little bit more about what magic means to you and also your relationship to the word witch. I'm going to give a really pragmatic definition of magic. Love it. I think that magic is basically just what is already real, but we don't understand yet or know exactly how to explain or describe. (laughs) I just love that definition because... um... When I think about like reading like magical realism books and stuff, which is like one of my favorite genres, um, you know, they often talk about in, I can't remember what story, House of the Spirits, I want to say, they're talking about the man who would come to town and sell them these magical things and they would describe them and you'd be like, oh, what are they talking about? And then, you know, however many years down the road, they realize he was selling magnets. But at the time, you know, there was no science to, um, you know, explain to people how this magical thing worked. So I really love that definition you just gave. Like it's simple, but it makes perfect sense to me. And about the word witch, I grew up identifying with witchcraft and wanting to be a witch, you know, when you're a kid and you think that you have to go through some training or (laughs) earn your witchiness. So I think I've always been witchy. And I've only recently stopped using that word as much. I'll use it in certain contexts for legibility. Like if there's other people who want to use that term, it works. But I just think that paganism as a worldview is is a bit less specific and more broad. And for me, that gives me a lot more freedom of identity. It almost feels like witch or witchcraft is like a practice that maybe you have to have, or it, it seems like for me, it feels like there's effort involved or I'm anchoring myself to a really specific lineage that may not always reflect what I'm up to. And so to me, I just prefer to identify as pagan because it feels like something I can be without having to like do more things or um, identify with a specific aesthetic or anything. And I'm sure there's a lot of witches who would just use the exact same definition for witchcraft. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't impose that on anyone else. If somebody calls themselves a witch, I believe them. (laughs) And if someone calls themselves a pagan, I believe them too. For me personally, I feel like witchcraft is, is just under the banner of paganism and it's one diverse way of identifying. Yeah. Mm, The magic of nuance. (laughs) I know. We're creating these terms for ourselves now, Mm. which is a new experience before they were put on us. So I think we're very much in the process of creating them. And I think that they're never going to be finished. I think we're always going to be redefining what a witch is. And I'm glad that finally we get to be the people who do that. Mm. I'd love to weave uh, music in now too. Um, I've loved your 
Fair Folk podcast and how you bring music in. I've never heard anything like that. Um, and and just kind of the intersections between magic and music and how music has influenced your work. Absolutely. I included music in the Fair Folk podcast because I love music so much. And I think music is an opening into other worlds and other people's experiences. It's magic in that way of there's something about how music works that we don't understand. We know how to do music, but we don't really know what it is, I think. And it's like we're playing with universal goo or something like the cosmos. It's very like creation is this sacred act of collaboration with the non-human and music is, is gotta be like on the most mystical end of that. I think music is a ritual and teaches us how to be in ritual or how to be in different ways of ways of um, in different states of being, I guess you could say there's, it's like when you listen to a song that you really can't stand there's this repulsion and you want to like literally remove your body from the situation. It's, it's almost unbearable. And I think that that's a testament to the fact that it is like being in a ritual that you didn't consent to, that it's shaping the world around you and it's shaping your body itself or like compelling you to move in certain ways that I think it's important to be intentional about. And uh, yeah, ritual and music are almost interchangeable sometimes. I'm sure there's lots of people who would disagree with me about that, but I think the core of, of, of magical ritual and like paganism can be music, partly because you can tell that it was one of the first things that, that Christian missionaries tried to, to take away from from traditional cultures all over the world is, is their specific songs and dances that communicate how the world comes into being for them. And I think that we can be putting a lot of love and care into making new musics and dances and recovering older ones because they do, they do create worlds. They're, they're creative rituals. And so I, yeah, I'd love to include folk music in my work because it's, because it does that work for you. It's almost like we think, how do you make a ritual? Like we have to have candles and we have to have like a start and a middle and a finish. And, and music just has all of those things already just embedded in it. You put on a song and you're in, in a trance. So let's also talk about Yule and rituals of Yule. Um, what is your relationship to winter? Um, and, and is there any sort of songs or stories that, that come up for you there? Yeah, I want to return to my childhood approach to winter because I have a really hard time with winter. I'm a really sensitive person and I get seasonal depression. So in a way, I really follow the cycles of nature with the seasons. I, I like die and am reborn, not quite literally, but emotionally it feels that way sometimes. But I can remember when I was younger, I lived in, apparently I lived in the snowiest place in the world. I grew up in a town called Stewart. And it has the most snowfall recorded anywhere. And, wow. and I loved it so much. <laughs> in the summer, I would like put on snowsuits and pretend that it was winter. And my parents would laugh and laugh because the winter is so long. But I, I just couldn't wait for it to come back. And so some of my favorite memories from childhood were putting on my big snowsuit, going out in, in the heavy snowfall and laying on the snow underneath a lamppost 
and just watching the flakes come down on me and just slowly bury me in this like silent, glowing, angelic blessing (laughs) pile, you know, (laughs) it was just like, (laughs) it is the most abundant thing. It's quite incredible. It's like water made tangible and it has this inner light that just shines. And so for me, connecting with that, that energy of snow is really a beautiful part of winter and how I like to relate to it on a spiritual level. And one of my favorite stories about the winter is the Frau Halle story, which is in the Grimm's Folk Tales collection. And it's about a young girl who falls into a well and comes out the other side. And then she's put in the service of this old woman who gets her to clean her house. (laughs) And there's a lot more in the story, but when she is shaking out her duvet, her bedding that's filled with goose feathers, she understands that she's making the snow for the landscape. And it sounds like this kind of weird folktale, like no big deal story about, oh yeah, this is how snow is made. Frau Halle is shaking out her bed sheets. But there's this whole body of, of tradition and ritual and story across Europe, across Northern Europe from Halloween until spring that's connected with these, these former goddess figures of which Frau Halle is just one. And they are connected with the winter time. So these are figures like Frau Halle, someone you may have heard of called Perchta, Labafana from Italy, Grilla from Iceland, the Kayak from Celtic and, and Gaelic areas. And they're all these sort of threatening, but also life-giving goddesses who rule the whole winter time. And so they're always, they're always offering things like, you know, snow, but also they're a threat to children. <laughs> they might eat you alive. <laughs> um, there's this sort of mix between their, um, their strictness and, and the fact that like, cause winter is strict. Winter is harsh. Winter is death dealing, right? But it's also the origin of all life. And so snow is this beautiful abundance that falls from the sky and connecting it with this, this feminine divine figure for Ohala or these other related figures, depending on which tradition you like to work with, I think is a a super powerful move. And it really makes me feel much happier in the wintertime to think that there's someone there looking out for us and that this is organized and that this has been going on for millennia and that it's absolutely sacred and necessary. And so the Frau Halle story always helps me connect with that. So do you view the winter solstice as like a portal of sorts? Um, I know there's a lot of conversation about portals in the pagan and witchcraft community. So I'm just curious your take on that. I love that question. And I, I had to like really chew on it for a while because it's interesting that the year is a series of portals, right? It's a circle and, mm-hmm. and it just sort of leads back into itself in a very fractal kind of way. But obviously the winter solstice is an important moment of that. And I think if it's a portal, it's a portal into this underworld, like upside down space that's actually filled with like the warmth of human kindness. (laughs) It reminds me of like this, there's this, if I have like a picture of what the winter solstice would be like in an experiential way, 
it's this scene from the Snow Queen story by Hans Christian Andersen, mm-hmm. which is a, it's a fairy tale. He wrote it. It's not a folktale, but it's like based on a lot of folktale motifs. And there's this girl named Gerda who has lost her best friend, Kay, who was her neighbor. And she's traveling across Scandinavia <laughs> looking for him. And she's, she's rugged and lost and barefoot. And she's gotten a ride from a a reindeer at one point, but she's, she's, it's the depth of winter and she is freezing and nearly starving. And this reindeer takes her to this tiny little hut, which is probably like a turf house. It's like underground and there's a woman inside and she's, she's lapped. So she's from Northern Finland or Sweden. And she is cooking fish over an oil lamp and she takes Gerda in and warms her up and and tells her that she's doing great and writes directions to another woman's house on a dried fish um, and sets her off on her way again. But there's this, there's this compactness to the scene where she's outside in the cold and the dark and then she comes into this tiny little underground house that's lit by firelight. And there's this kind woman there who wants to give her everything she has, you know, her like one dried fish, this stock fish. And she writes on it and gives her directions. And it's almost like at this time of year, we're in this hyper-concentrated experience of light where it's like almost everything is darkness. And then there's this like pearl that is what the sun is doing. It's just like this tiny space. And it's just about like giving. It's just about like getting so close together in the cozy underground hut with the fire and giving everything we have to one another this gift-giving tradition and these feasts that we're having, it's like we're making something out of almost nothing because this is when we would have not very many supplies. The earth is not giving us very much. And yet we're throwing like the biggest party of the year together. And that's how I feel like it's a, it's like an opening where an opening shouldn't be, you know, like, it's like, how is this house that's almost invisible under the snow? How does this exist? And how is it going to give me the warmth I need in, in just the last moment to keep going. I think that's what the portal would be <laughs> of the winter solstice. Yeah. So do you have any midwinter plans? Like, are there any traditions that you like to uphold? My friend, Amelia Blom, she lives in Southern Sweden. She taught me one last year that I really liked. I historically would put like an intention on paper into a bonfire. And she has this much more elaborate, version of this of this ritual that I that I'm definitely using now and I'd love to share with everybody else and it's to take on the winter solstice you can start or you can start on Christmas for like the 12 days of Christmas start on whichever day you choose in this period of time just trying to keep it around that that moment of the solstice and write 12 wishes for the year on a piece of paper and then cut each one out and fold them up and don't look at them anymore. And every day of those 12 days that you decide starting on the solstice or Christmas, take one of those wishes and put it into the fire. And on the 12th day, and so that's your offering that to the, to the gods, to your protective spirits, to your guides, um, and asking them to fulfill that wish for you. But on the last day, instead of putting the last wish that's remaining in the fire, and you don't know what it is, you open that wish and you read it. And that wish is your responsibility for the year. Oh, I love that. (laughs) You do that part and you leave the rest to the divine. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a pretty simple ritual. I mean, it sounds like it has a couple steps, but you get the gist, I think. And I think it's just a beautiful gift and a reminder that, again, this is like a generous time of year. It's a time to reach out into the darkness and find that tiny piece of concentrated light and just expand it and let it hold you. And I feel like that's what that ritual is all about. It kind of reminds me of a Yule log almost too, where, Mm. you know, people would write like little wishes and like, you know, attach them to the Yule log before burning them. Um, Yeah. So I think that's really beautiful. I love that. And of course the paper is made of trees. So Danica, uh, I think we're nearing the end of our time together, but where can people connect with you, the Pagan Monastery Project and more of your work? Thank you for having me. I would love to invite people to listen to either one of my podcasts. There's Fair Folk Podcast, which I've been making for six years off and on, and that's folklore and paganism in general. And then there's the Pagan Monastery Podcast, which is specifically about our Pagan Monastery Project and all of the ideas and inspiration related to that. And you can just join my mailing list to get updates on all the things that are happening. And then finally, you can also find me on Instagram where I post occasionally. And if you're interested in the Pagan Monastery community, just come join us online. You can reach out through Instagram or the mailing list or links in the podcast. You'll find me linked everywhere. And we'd love to have you. And you don't have to feel like there's rules about what you have to already know already. It's a place for learning and sharing both. So everybody is welcome. It's an inclusive space. And we would love to have you be a part of our world. Thank you so much, Danica and listeners, for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kristen Lizenby and Kate Ballou. You can find us online at Easton Alchemy and at K8Ballou. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Tune into next week's episode where we will be speaking with a very special guest. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mote it be or something better. Until next time.